Stuff Podcasts. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear. Some episodes may also contain explicit language, so please take care. My pet peeve is when we talk about domestic violence or sexual violence and and somebody says, not all men are like that. And it's like, well, no shit, but some of you did it, <laughs> you know. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling on. Welcome to Tell Me About It, the podcast where we're doing our best without pockets. I'm Kirsty Johnston. I'm Michelle Duff. And I'm Noelle McCarthy. And this week we're talking about cities not being designed for women. We're actually talking about everything not being designed for women. How are your Twitter notifications, Kirsty? That went off, didn't it, when you asked about things that weren't designed for women or gender minorities? I think we've had like more than 500 replies so far just to that one question like, What's one thing that wasn't built for women? So what were the top ones? Were there recurring themes? It was like everything from like phones to piano keyboards, kitchen benches, bike seats to like, I don't know, the entire health and justice system. But maybe the top one was, again, yeah, pockets or public toilets. And somebody said women need them more often for more reasons, but there are fewer available. They're not well designed for our needs. This public toilet issue makes me furious, and I feel like I have been banging on about this for years. There is nothing more aggravating than standing in line for a toilet at a gig, and there's dozens of women in your line, and you see these men just sort of sauntering past, going into an empty empty toilet cubicle, and they don't even realise how annoying that is. It's just taken for granted that there'd be one available. Yeah, they've never hopped on one leg, waiting, waiting, waiting while there's a massive queue. I so agree with you, Michelle. Did you know, actually, did both of you know that it actually takes women more than twice as long as men to go to the toilet, like to actually go to the toilet? There's this um, data journalist from England called um, Caroline Criada Perez, and she wrote a book called Invisible Women. And it's all about basically like the, the bias in design. It's all about the data around the bias in design so that everything women use, so many things women use, are designed for men. So many people recommended that in that Twitter thread we were just discussing, Noelle. I'm so impressed you've actually read it because obviously I didn't have time in like the four hours between tweeting and now. <laughs> Honestly, you don't have the heartbeats for it. It would make you, like, if you weren't already, you would be furious after reading this. Like, she talks about how offices are always sort of five degrees colder than is comfortable for women because our metabolisms are faster and our bodies run colder. She talks about, like Michelle was saying, the the queue in the toilets, how medicine isn't designed for us, seatbelts, seatbelts that aren't designed for, like, to accommodate breasts and pregnant bodies and also like they use men as crash test dummies honestly like uh, and this is stuff that's so serious you know women get injured and die it's not just annoying it's infuriating and of course she got like a whole heap of shit when the book came out because people were acting like she you know invented it or something yeah I bet people were like what what are you talking about it's just the world you know stop complaining yeah look just reading through some of these replies some of them are 
um, infuriating. It's you're right. The world's totally built for, with uh, able-bodied men in mind, and we don't even realize it. Like someone said, the working day, or do I mean the school day? The thing we have to collect children from three o'clock and monitor school holidays. It's also manager career. Amen. And another one said uh, the thing that really bugs them is any architectural feature that has a glass floor for reasons obvious to wearers of skirts and open stairways for that same reason. Oh, God. Yeah, I totally get this. At my old high school, we, I don't know um, about you, but we all wore boxer shorts just because it wasn't safe to wear, you know, undies under under your skirt. You had to wear those shiny kind of, boxer shorts that were more in the 90s. I am so shocked by this, Michelle. Like I went to an all-girls school, an all-girls Catholic school, so it's probably th- that one's not on my radar. We did have loads of stairs. But how would it work? Like would the boys be perving at you as you were walking up the stairs? Yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> Particularly you, you Michelle. <laughs> I honestly, I just think it was too risky. You just you just knew that they could be walking behind you. You know, you might be sitting there trying to have lunch with your friends and like, or, or it would be windy. I don't know. It's just, um, it didn't feel like it was something you could do. I was just going to say it's lucky, you know, you have amazing legs, Michelle. I've done a photo shoot with you, but that is probably internalized misogyny and objectification as well. So I won't say that. There's traps I, everywhere. You can yeah, tell me I've got nice legs. I've got great legs. It. I would <laughs> Take it. But it's sucky. It's a sucky thing, isn't it? Like you're supposed to be just hanging out with your friends and enjoying your school days. And instead, like you're worried, you're wearing your Tweety Bird silky boxer shorts or whatever, because you're worried about having your bum perved at. It sucks. That's the thing though, right? Like you just, like we just adapt to it. You get used to it. I mean, my favorite response from the entire Twitter thread was this woman from Kath who said like when we asked what's one thing not built for women, she just goes, life. <laughs> Amen, Kat. <laughs> Kat knows what's up. I mean, yeah, and the thing is that oftentimes when we do point these things out, the solutions, you know, the issues with the way that things are designed, the solution isn't to, you know, to try and think about what, how we could change that structurally. It's like, well, let's just like kind of, you know, make a slight modification for example at my old high school the solution was to make the skirts longer um <laughs> which isn't really a solution when you think about it it's not solving any problems uh, of behavior or what people are up against uh michelle i think you'll find that changing skirt length is extremely it's very structural that's <laughs> that's literally what <laughs> You know what she means. I mean, there was another Twitter response, wasn't there, Kirsty, that encapsulates what you're saying, Michelle, about that problem with structures. Like this one woman I read who said when she changed to working through during school hours, like we were talking about, she had to stop getting the bus to work because she couldn't get to her kids on time. Like the whole bus schedule was built for traditional commuter hours whoever the traditional commuter is not for people with kids (laughs) yeah just a man just a man and then she said didn't she like when she submitted to the council that their public transport plan was gender blind like another email she had to write another letter and they said no it's actually gender neutral like what even is that I don't understand that phrase I mean to me all that says is we didn't actually want to consider gender um, and it seems to work for most people, i.e., you know, the ones we built it for, i.e., not you. So let's just pretend it's fine. 
I mean, it's kind of like erasing gender altogether in a situation where there's clearly a disparity or where a certain group are, are being privileged. I know, right? I mean, sorry, like as much as we'd all love it, we're not actually in a post-gender state yet, so you can't act like gender differences don't exist. And I mean, like keeping on the theme of public transport and city design, like studies have shown that women are like a third less likely to cycle to work um, because they simply don't feel comfortable and like also women walk fewer steps than men because they don't feel safe. I mean, I can't even believe that there was once a place in Wellington called Rape Alley, which was just kind of accepted for years. Hang on, what? Like outrage from Featherstone over here. Where is Rape Alley? What is that? Oh, so that's like a path near Victoria University's Boyd Wilson Field. It's kind of shady and dark. There's lots of trees that hang over it. It's kind of badly built. It's, you know, it's like classic Wellington, old school Wellington. Um, and there were like repeated sexual assaults on women on that walkway. Um, there were attacks being reported back as far as back as 2014. Um, and at that time they were like, oh, we'll just pop in a security guard. And it wasn't until like years later, like more attacks afterwards that they decided to, um, <laughs> they renamed the path. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's a solution then, a rebrand. Uh, do you know what? I feel safer already just thinking about that. Don't be cynical. Like, also put in some murals. <laughs> what were the murals about? Were the murals about violent assault? Just like some sunshine, just like a, a mural of a sun. Look, it's brighter. No, and they put in more CCTV cameras and, you know, so that if you <laughs> if you did get attacked, they could see it, I guess. No, sorry. Jokes oh aside, God. I think they also did, like, cut down some trees and put in some lighting eventually. Eventually. I think the question here is how many attacks does it take for there to be a response that actually keeps women safe? Here, here. Like, too many, I fear, is going to be the answer. Well, yeah, this literally brings us right to our guest today. Her name is Grace Lung. She's a scientist and she was actually attacked by a stalker, a guy who waited on a dark path and attempted to sexually assault her in Wellington in 2011. Um, Grace was later told by police that they believed the same man was responsible for up to 12 similar attacks, um, including on the place we've just been talking about, Rape Alley, a few years after she was attacked. I read your story, Kirsty, and Grace is amazing. Like, at the time of of the attack, I think you have in your story, she was about 45 kg soaking wet, and she manages to fight this guy off with a casserole dish, holding a casserole dish. With a cake in it. She'd baked a cake and... The casserole dish, I mean, those are heavy. Was it a Le Creuset? Very heavy, those ones. I mean, look, for clarity, I don't think she fought him off with the casserole dish. She just, like, kept hold of it while she was fighting him off because, you know, priorities, obviously. What an absolute legend. Grace is with us now. She is joining us from Australia because she's living and working in Brisbane as an agroecologist, which is just the coolest job title ever and a whole other podcast if she's going to explain that to us. And also moonlighting as a comedian in her spare time. Welcome, Grace. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Grace, first off, can we just clear up an issue? Why were you carrying a cake? 
<laughs> so I've kind of simplified it for the sake of my comedy sketch, but what it really was was um, an old casserole dish and I'd bought some mooncakes um, because it was mid-autumn festival, I'm Chinese, and I put the mooncakes inside the casserole dish to kind of protect them. And it's it's funny that Kirsty clarified I didn't fight the attacker with the casserole dish, but I have had many flashbacks where of like, oh, if I, I should have just smashed his face with the casserole dish and maybe he would have got caught and maybe, you know, all those other women wouldn't have been attacked um, in the years after, which is not as good as flashback as what if the police had just done their job. So true. Amen. Yeah, there's a whole lot to kind of unpick there, Grace. But I guess set the scene for us first. Like we've been talking about these dark and unsafe spaces. Was that pathway like that? It was. It was absolutely um, like very similar to so-called Rape Alley. Um, It was the path from, I believe, Tasman Street through the Massey campus to, to Mount Vic. So... Yeah, you walk through Massey Campus, um, it's kind of a shortcut just around Massey Campus. So it was very dark, um, a lot of vegetation, stairs, and yeah, usually I bike, um, but because I had the, the cakes that night and I was carrying the casserole dish, I, I was walking, so I just decided to take the shortest path home. And yeah, it's it was usually very, very quiet, and I understand Massey have also added extra lighting and security um, since the attack, but not before. I think they issued um, a press release saying, oh, women need to be more careful walking through there. They should wear running shoes um, if possible. I don't know if they had that whole um, put your keys between your fingers thing um, after the attack, but that came first. I think they did remember, and there was, like, heaps of outrage. People were like, oh, thank you, Massey. So helpful. Do you guys ever wonder where are the women or, you know, anyone else in the room when these meetings are happening, like when they're deciding to send out these press, these helpful press releases? Definitely not there. Definitely not there. Yeah, or being shut down. And, you know, without wanting to to sort of re-traumatise you, Grace, or trigger you, uh, you can say as much as you feel comfortable, like, what happened? So um, what happened was I was walking home after watching RuPaul's Drag Race at a friend's house, carrying the cake, and just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, a, a man ran up behind me, covered my mouth, said something like, if you scream, I'll kill you or hurt you and then dragged me down the side of uh, one of the buildings on Massey campus. And, yeah, I just, it was all like a bit of a, a blur, but I managed to fight him off and he ran away. And I believe that is kind of in the similar attacks. That's kind of his MO. He doesn't often follow through with the attack if if the... Um, victim fights back he'll he usually would run away and I managed to sock him in the face which is where police later managed to get a partial um DNA sample and because when he ran away my instinct I was just in full um instinct mode I started chasing him back I was just so enraged and adrenaline exactly exactly I was just and it's funny because I'm not 
normally a very angry or reactive, I'm very conflict averse, but I just went into full like lizard brain mode and started chasing him down. And he actually ran up the hill and fell over and kind of scrambled up. And I kind of, we kind of made eye contact for, for a minute and, and that's when my rational brain was like, um, maybe you should stop chasing this guy and call the police because <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. And then he managed to get away. And at that point I phoned my partner at the time and then, and the police. Yeah. So, and then for some reason the casserole dish was intact and the cakes inside were completely unharmed. So most importantly, <laughs> exactly. It wasn't Le Crusette, unfortunately, couldn't afford it at the time being a student, <laughs> but um, still still a pretty, you know, hardy piece of ceramic. So. Just thinking about that police response, Grace, because um, I remember the time I did the reporting um, mm. a few years ago, like the initial police response to you was really good, right? They like did all the right things. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just the follow up, like they never caught him at the time. Yep. But then like... Also, they never followed up on information you'd given them and they suspected Mm. at one point there was like a stalker out there, but they didn't make that information public. Like even when there was that second assault on the exact same path where you were attacked. I mean, looking back, I mean, I think it was pretty bizarre, but like, how do you feel now? Yeah, it's kind of, well, it's really disappointing that the perpetrator, as far as I know, still hasn't been caught. And at the time I was, you know, traumatised and trying to just get on with my life. So the police were really good in the immediate um, response, investigated very thoroughly. I was provided with counselling and then nothing happened. And I understand the police are often under-resourced and crimes are very difficult to solve, but I think it was maybe two or three years later, and there were um, a series of attacks uh, around Boyd Wilson Field Rape Alley, and there was a a sketch that another survivor had kind of come up with, and I saw that sketch was like, that face looks kind of familiar. I wonder what ever happened to my case. And so I called the police. I tried to call directly the investigating um, officer at the time. They were on holiday, so I left a message and basically that was never followed up. I said, oh, I've just read about this case in the paper. Sounds very similar to my case that happened a few years ago. Wonder if it'd be useful just to confirm maybe it's the same perpetrator and also what happened to my case. Did they ever go anywhere? And they just kind of very disinterestedly took a message and never called me back. So you never got any follow-up? No, no, not until a few more years later, I saw Kirsty's amazing article about how the police have potentially mishandled thousands of sexual assault cases. I thought, oh my God, is that what happened? Because you just want to get on with your life. You don't want to think about it that much and you try to move on. And then I thought, oh no, this is, this is, this is just wrong. Um, and I got in touch with Kirsty and it kind of yeah, went from there. But as far as I know, I haven't, there hasn't been any progress made on the case. No, like, remember they told you, they told you that they thought it was maybe 12 link cases and that's what we did the story about. Mm-hmm. 
remember at the time they were kind of weird and vague about it. They never told us if they knew who it was even. And then like even a year later I followed up and they were still just super vague. It was really weird. And lots of the criticism at that time was that the police should have been telling women this information so they could know and keep themselves safe. Yeah. Did you ever hear anything at university? Like was there any talk about that area or... No. You know, had it ever been flagged? No, I think by then I'd left university and other than the article that came up from from Massey saying women should wear running shoes if they're walking through there, no. I believe Victoria always had like an Angels on Campus program where if um, anyone was working late on campus they can request someone to walk you home or to where you needed to go if you weren't feeling safe. But I, that was years ago, so I don't really know if that program's expanded or changed or, or any of those things. Did you, I mean, did you get, like, a lot of victim blaming afterwards? You know, people saying that you shouldn't have been walking there and that kind of thing. And why do you reckon that is the response that people have? Like, why is that their first response? Oh, I think rape culture and victim blaming is so deeply ingrained in society. Um, Fortunately, all of my friends were incredibly supportive because I have cool friends. But I did remember one of the most hurtful things about the incident was that I didn't, I chose not to tell my family about it because I knew that would be their response. Like, what, what were you doing walking alone? What were you doing out at night? All of that victim blaming stuff and I knew I know they care about me but I just know that their immediate response would be so deeply ingrained in victim blaming that for my own well-being I decided not to tell them at the time but other than that my my friends were amazingly supportive so so that was really encouraging um and another kind of not regret uh, kind of disappointment that I had was I was asked to go on um what's that police show like police Police 107. That's it. Maybe a week after the incident and I w- it was just too fresh and scary and I was also worried that my family would see it and ask why I didn't tell them. But that was another regret that I had, like maybe if I'd spoken out a bit earlier um, that would have helped to catch the perpetrator. But again, like that's, that's, again, that's like internalised victim blaming. I know you've probably done a whole lot of reflection around this Grace. And, you know, apart from the obvious flaws uh, in the response to your case, we've been having like a wider discussion about what else needs to happen in order for women to feel safe and be kept safe, because this isn't just in our heads, right? Like this is actually happening in terms of city design. Like, do you think it's better where you live in Australia or, you know, is it still just, you know, part of an occupational hazard of being a woman in a city? Absolutely. I think Brisbane's reasonably safe, but um, I think it's just part of being a woman wherever you go that's, that there's that. I think most of us have been ingrained to think, be careful, you know, be careful where you walk at night, don't wear short skirts, don't wear heels, blah, blah, blah. It's always, we've always been taught that the responsibility is on us. And since I've been attacked, I've kind of felt that responsibility more as a survivor to talk about it, you know, in my stand-up and I've done um, fundraisers for um, domestic violence awareness through stand-up. And then in the last few years or so, I've actually just out of 
you know, self-care and like I've got several chronic illnesses and I thought, why am I stressing myself out to do all of these things when really the responsibility is not on me, it's on society and victim blaming and also men need to do the work. And I've got, I've actually made some notes, there's been some quite encouraging stories of a slight shift starting to happen where men are actually realising, yes, this is a problem and I do have some responsibility for it, whether or not, you know, even if I don't have any intentions of sexually assaulting anyone, there's still a responsibility. So I'd just like to share a few of these anecdotes. Um, Like, for example, I was walking down a quiet street in Brisbane one afternoon and there was a really tall guy walking behind me. And of course, I did that whole shifty look behind me, walk a few steps, look behind me kind of thing, which every woman has done. We all know, yeah. And then all of a sudden, he actually walks onto the road and walks this like big circle around me to get ahead so that he's not following me anymore. Mm, so that you don't have to keep looking behind you exactly. at him, right? That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And that would, had never occurred to me that men would have that sort of um, self-awareness to do something so deliberate and and thoughtful just to make someone feel a little safer. So that was, I, I was just like kind of really pleasantly shocked and said, oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, I thought, oh, maybe he just needed to walk ahead of me. But he walked onto the road to make sure he wasn't, like, hovering behind me as he sped up. So I think that was, like, a very conscious decision to make. So I thought that was really lovely. I like that because everyone can do that, right? You can just do that. If you're walking behind a, a woman at night and you think you might be, you know, you think you shouldn't be, just do a circle, get in front. Anyone can do yeah. that. Like, it's not rocket science. Yeah, particularly like we were saying, if it's like an area that's dark, there's not much light or something like that, you know, like that's the exact time that you need to do it. Because obviously trying to get cities rebuilt is going to be... Yeah, that's a bigger ask. A long road. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And it comes down to individual behaviour and individual responsibility as well. Like my pet peeve is when we talk about domestic violence or sexual violence and, and somebody says, not all men are like that. And it's like, well, no shit, but some of you did it, you know, and it sounds very suspicious when someone's immediate response is, it wasn't me, so I'm cool. Yeah, it's also such a deflection, eh? It's like, so you have absolutely no responsibility in trying to, like, make a difference and, you know, perhaps changing the behaviour of the ones that do it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's like it's not good enough that you're not just not a rapist like another that's an extremely low bar for mankind (laughs) exactly it should be like the very base standard yeah you don't get an award for that sorry another friend was telling me how you don't get a you don't get a mooncake for that (laughs) exactly yeah mooncakes for good boys only so (laughs) yeah another friend of mine was just saying how men often in the absence of of women just the way they talk about women is absolutely atrocious and just kind of questioning that and calling that out is such an important thing like where does this hatred come from and and why um 
you know, man to man, um, what's going on here? We've talked about this before, Grace. Like we we did an episode about consent and we were talking to Lily, who is a consent educator. And you said it, didn't you, Kirsty? Like the importance of the bystander effect, like being able for young men, especially it makes more of a difference than anything else, I think. Like having your friend say, hey, that's not cool or... You know, don't talk about women like that. Exactly. I was just thinking about that and like the context of what we were saying before, you know, if there are ever women at those meetings where they decide to send out a PR about running shoes or they decide to not put lights in or they decide to paint a mural or whatever. I'm like, still getting over the mural. Like, I, I, We're I can't get over it. Yeah, that, oh. You know, it's like the same thing. It's like you're a dude in a meeting and people are talking like that. I guess, you know, they just don't understand heaps of it, though, do they? It's literally why they have to have women there because they literally, like, I don't think men ever think about late at night. It just wouldn't, you know, they go for runs or whatever. But it's kind of what Michelle was saying as well about toilets. Like, it's the urinal effect. You know, if you know you can just stroll on in there and there will always be a urinal free then you've never really empathised about the opposite situation, which is that you always, always have to queue for a toilet. It's just been like that for so long that it's normalised. And I think you were talking about, you know, products that are not designed for women and you just kind of like try and tweak around it rather than actually change the product altogether. Or the need for the product at all, right? Exactly, Exactly. And I guess in this situation, there's like two things, right? Like we both want men to change the behavior and we want to redesign cities so they're like (laughs) not gender neutral, I guess. (laughs) And you think everyone would be into that. Like it is a good thing for there not to be so many opportunities for opportunistic violent crime, right? Like that's, that's a good, a social good. Yeah, that benefits everyone. Kirsty, was there something on that one of the reports around the attack on Grace, something about it being an ideal location? Yeah, there's definitely a part in the police report where it describes that pathway that she was on. And it literally says, this is an ideal location for an opportunistic attack. And I found it really jarring, I think, because when I was reporting on it, it was it was like years after, it was like seven years after the incident um, she told us about. And I was like, hang on, that's still, it's still there. I mean, I think they've changed it slightly now. But you would think if the police saw that, I don't know, don't they have some way of being like, hello, council, please amend your rape path. (laughs) Yeah, please get rid of ideal um, locations for sexual assault. Make it less ideal. Just make it less ideal, (laughs) you know? You would really hope that they're not using that turn of phrase anymore about ideal. Mm. Grace, do you find when you do, I don't know if you still do, because it must be exhausting, you know, when you when you incorporate this sort of thing into your comedy routines, if you do, mm-hmm. is it a really good way, like, it feels to me that that's a really good way of raising consciousness almost by stealth, you know, like with laughs, yep. because you, you're holding a mirror up to behavior. Absolutely. Um, it's probably one of the things that really helped me to recover was discovering stand-up comedy and being able to talk talk about this really, really awful thing that happened to me and happens to people all the time. But to, yeah, hide it or just buffer it with laughter and comedy because it's such a difficult, awkward, uncomfortable thing to talk about. Like in the lunchroom, you wouldn't just be like, oh, so how was your weekend? Sexual assault rates are still terribly high, aren't they, lol? But when you kind of I mean, you buffer could. it with... 
yeah, you can, I mean, I have, <laughs> but it's, um, it doesn't often go down well, <laughs> weirdly enough. But yeah, like humor is a great way to buffer really difficult topics to talk about. I also talk about chronic illness and climate change and kind of environmental degradation. So it's, it's been a really useful tool. And I, there's, you know, a, a number of women that are finding their voice to like I have a friend who survived a very violent abusive relationship for a long time and now she's using comedy as a way to talk about it and raise awareness it's 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 a lot easier to digest and take on when it's kind of cushioned with humor and good storytelling um, and that makes it really powerful Well, hopefully this podcast and speaking with you today, Grace, has helped some people feel both um, uncomfortable (laughs) and tense. And empowered. Yeah. And thank you so much. Absolutely. I hope so too. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I, I love to talk about this as much as possible. So that was Grace Ling talking to us from where she now lives in Australia about the attack that happened to her in Wellington. Listening to that now, after doing the reporting, I think it was it was around 10 years ago, wasn't it? How do you feel about that, Kirsty? I still don't know how police got away with it, eh? Like, I was just thinking, how is it that they were like, oh, yeah, there might be a serial stalker out there. Maybe there'll be 12 crimes linked to this one person. And then they just never, like, never followed up on that publicly. I don't know if he was arrested, if it turned out not to be true. Like, they literally just never said a thing. And now I'm like... What the hell? So maybe actually um, I'll go and ask him about that. (laughs) She's walking up. Here we go. (laughs) The Kraken stirs. What about you, Noelle? I was just thinking about like how the onus, it's it's what you were saying about the school skirt thing, Michelle. Like I was just thinking how the onus is always on us. Like that response in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, you know, saying, I don't wear running shoes or whatever, carry away a rape whistle, you know, like it's always. And what Grace was saying about the responsibility she feels on the one hand, but also the weight of that responsibility. And why is it on her when this is actually a social problem, right? Like this is for everybody. And that's all the things that we sort of talked about in the beginning, isn't it? The things that we found out after that uh, Twitter call out, you know, all the things that the range from sort of the, the funny or the seemingly funny uh, to the to the serious, like seatbelts that have, you know, mm. real life implications. Yeah, and medication. I mean, they're not really funny, but... Well, life and death implications. So I guess it's not funny, but sometimes that, it's like, what else What else can you do? You have to laugh. We have to laugh. Anyway, I think that's us. I'm going to go and uh, measure my bike seat after learning from Twitter that if um, you get one that's not designed for a woman, it might actually hurt your fanny. So it could literally be too skinny for your fanny. Is that the case? Justice for fannies. New hashtag. That's the new podcast hashtag. Justice for fannies. I'm just glad that we got through this episode without saying fingering. (laughs) Well, we almost did. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Noel here. Just one final note. Grace's attack on the Massey campus happened in 2012. So we went back and asked Massey what they've been doing to make their campuses safer since then. A spokesperson for Massey said they've hired more security guards, they're giving the guards more training, and they've put up more lights and security cameras in car parks and building entrances. And they've also got security awareness training for students and staff now, and safety plans for anyone feeling at risk. So thanks, Massey, for updating us on that. Tell Me About It is made for stuff by Bird of Paradise Productions. It was produced by me, Noel McCarthy, and written by me, Kirsty Johnston, and Michelle Duff. Our script supervisor is Eugene Bingham, and thanks to Janine Fenwick and Eugene for editorial oversight. Mixed by Mark Chesterman. And our theme tune is Queenie Queenie by Tammy Nielsen, our queen. You can like the podcast and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me About It is made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling off.